And uh, what a joy it is when uh, um, family are involved, and uh, it's, uh, it's a joy to do that. So uh, names are interesting things, aren't they? So when you think about names, if I was to say to you, name a country uh, where most of the surnames began with the word van, what would you say? Holland, the Netherlands, that's exactly right. If I said to you, name a country where most of the family names, surnames, ended with the letters I-A-N, would anybody know which country that is? Armenia. Armenia. Who said that? Well done. How did you know that? You weren't meant to know that one. (laughs) Exactly right. So I had a friend uh, who, uh, uh, their surname was Ozonian. And when I met some of their family, they were all ending in I-A-N. If your name ends in, or your, your family name was Jones, which country would you quite likely have come from? Not England. No. You should know, though. No. There's not many options left now. British Isles, okay. No. Wales. Okay. Why do they end in, in, in why, why, why do they have the name Jones in Wales? Does anybody want to hazard a guess? It's not, a, it's not something I'm particularly proud of. The English made the Welsh change their surnames because we couldn't understand what their surnames were in English. So back in the 1700s, a law was passed and you were no longer allowed to use your Welsh surname. It had to be changed to Jones or Williams, something like that. And so you discover that many people... So not, not, not proud of that particular thing and they're trying to bring uh, names back. Um, the village I come from in Somerset, if your name was Hayward, you were quite likely to have the police called on you just because your name was Hayward. There was a family that for some reason the sons particularly used to get themselves into a lot of trouble and so the name Hayward was a name that you had to be careful with and the police certainly knew the Hayward family in many instances. Now why are we talking about names? The reason that we're talking about names is because the song that we sang, What a Beautiful Name, is explaining something about the scriptures and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we're coming back to our studies in Acts, Acts of the Apostles or Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And uh, just to set the scene, we have a few verses from Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. I'll read them for you. Therefore God also has highly exalted him And given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth. And of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Now if you have your Bibles keep it open please to Acts chapter 3. So that will be the section of scripture that we're uh, looking at. We've uh, spent the last 12 months in Acts 1 and 2, and today we start to uh, make uh, progress as we move into Acts chapter 3. Now, Acts chapter 3, of course, is a section of scripture that I'm guessing we uh, know fairly well. It's an account of a man who is healed. Uh, We know a great deal about this man, uh, at least we know certain facts and details about him which help us to understand exactly what was taking place. You see, the emphasis of Acts chapters 3 and 4 
is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the emphasis that we see being carried forward from chapters 1 and 2 into chapters 3 and 4. And very quickly to uh, show that this is the case, we discover that verse 6 of chapter 3 says, Silver and gold I do not have. This is Peter as he looks down at this man who is lying on a mat. Uh, He is seeking alms. He is uh, begging because that's the way that he gets money to live. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So Peter is speaking with great uh, clarity. Uh, He is speaking directly to this man. And he uses this statement, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, get up and walk. Now that tells us, of course, that this is not Peter who is uh, providing the strength and the power for this to happen. It is that Peter is simply saying, look to Jesus. Then we go in uh, a bit further in chapter 3 and verse 16 says, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. So again, Peter is giving all of the glory, all of the praise, all of the worship to Jesus Christ. Now, if we quickly move into chapter 4 and verse 7, by what power... Or by what name have you done this? So again, we see that the name of Jesus is invoked. People are interested. They're wanting to find out. Verse 10 says, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. This brings it home very clearly. This crowd of people knew what had taken place. Verse 12 says, nor is there salvation. In fact, isn't verse 12 just one of those wonderful, wonderful verses, uh, ones that you suddenly come across and you're reading, you say, wow, this means everything because it's such a joy. And so verse 12 says, nor is there salvation. What's salvation? Salvation is when you're saved. You're saved from a situation. You're saved from a dire situation. So if uh, a child falls in the water, a parent inevitably will want to rush in to save that child because you're the savior for that child. And so, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved, must be saved. So again, Scripture is very, very clear, and that word must is a word which we see very clearly presented here. Queen Elizabeth I, um, when she was confronted by, uh, I'm just trying to remember remember my Shakespeare at this particular moment. It's going to be a while. And I forget the character that came to her. And he said, Mom, you must. And she turned to him and said, Must thou never sayest unto princes, But here, our salvation is utterly dependent upon the name of Jesus, upon who Jesus is, upon what Jesus has done for us. There is no other name under heaven or any other way or opportunity by which we can be saved, even though so many people seem to think that there is. Power in the name of Jesus And so to try and introduce this, I just want to bring a contrast between the uh, first couple of chapters of Acts and then the chapters, um, particularly chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now, what's the point in doing this? Well, we see 
in chapter 2 the fact that the Holy Spirit is poured out. Uh, We see that uh, the Holy Spirit that was promised by the Lord Jesus has now come and has been poured into the lives of the apostles and the 120 others that were present. And this is the beginning of the church. This is, if you like, the birthday of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And power is being poured into these people. And so we see this in chapter 2. And as we come into chapter 3, we suddenly discover that you see the outworking of the transformative power that has been placed into the apostles, into those who were present at that time. And instead of being a group of terrified individuals hiding in some upper room somewhere, terrified to go out of the front door. They've barred the windows, they've locked the door, and they've got a secret knock maybe that you had to knock before they'd let you in. That's my imagination running away with me. But these men were terrified. They'd seen what was happening, what was going on. And then suddenly all of that changes, and it changes because the promised Holy Spirit fills them, indwells them. God came... And not just dwelled with them, but dwelled in them through the Holy Spirit. And now, here today, we begin to see the difference for you and I. We begin to understand that we can indeed have power from the name of Jesus through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So none of us should, if we're saved, if we know and love the Lord Jesus, should be afraid to go out into a world which is hostile toward us. We shouldn't be afraid to talk to people, to share with people, to live a life that brings glory to God. When your friends at school say, well, why aren't you going to do this? You can say to them with confidence and with no fear, because that's not how I live. Because I'm different. And I'm different because Christ lives within me. And so we don't have to be afraid to do that. So the contrast that we begin to see here is that Peter stands up. He is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And notice that it's not just Peter who stands. We're told that the 11 stood with him. They stand together. And I think there's a great lesson for us as churches to learn. We don't just leave it for the pastor. We don't just leave it for the elders. We stand together in the proclamation of the gospel. We're not afraid to be associated, to be seen, and to take our responsibility. One of the joys, perhaps, of, and maybe, you know, it's, it's the time is right. Joe and I are going to be away for a whole three months, and yet already we're seeing people that are standing up and being part of uh, leading this fellowship forward. And uh, hopefully, you know, come back it'll be it'll be a great joy to say you know how do I fit in here (laughs) and so we look forward to that but this is what they did they stood together and so Peter preaches but now when we come into chapter three we see a different aspect that's taking place and it's this it's that Peter is a personal worker he puts his hand down and his eyes gaze into the eyes of this guy who has been lame From his mother's womb, we're told, he's never walked in his life. He has no idea what it is to stand up, jump around, and do whatever it is. Because he's never been able to do that. And all of a sudden, we're going to see as we read these verses in a moment, that everything changes. And not only is he able to stand up, but he's able to leap, and he's able to run into the temple, and he's able to show to people what it is that Christ has done for him in his life. And Peter looks at him and he's become the personal worker. But it's the Holy Spirit that has changed Peter. 
It's the Holy Spirit that has given him the power. So we see Peter the preacher, we see Peter the personal worker, and then we see a little bit from chapter 2, but the multitudes, 3,000 came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit worked in their hearts and in their lives, and it was exciting and it was joyful. And, and Peter was able to stand up with the 11 and to preach the gospel. And he reminds them, if you remember back to chapter 2, he reminds them of who they are. They're sinners. And he reminds them of what Christ has done for them. He, well, you murdered him. He died for you. And so we see there that the multitudes were reached And now we come into chapter 3, and it's personal. And the Holy Spirit has led Peter and John to this one man to speak with him, to multitudes, to the individual. And this, of course, is what the gospel is like today. You know, we have multitudes of people where we reach and we teach and we, we share the gospel. And then we have individuals. And each one of us is involved. You in your life are not given an exemption clause for sharing the gospel. If you've come to faith in the Savior, you can't help but tell those around us what it is that Christ has done for me. He saved me. He's redeemed me. What joy it is. Sometimes I think we could do with a bit more sort of um, enthusiasm in our worship and, uh, and, uh, uh, and just a demonstration of, he saved me. All eternity, heaven is mine. He's my savior. What a great joy it is. And then we go, of course, a bit further and we discover that there was blessing in the ministry uh, there in chapter two as, uh, as Peter preaches, 3,000 people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told that they repent of their sin. And then a huge series of baptismal services take place. And these people are baptized. uh, And we see the power of the Holy Spirit at work. And there's great blessing that takes place. And of course, we move into chapters two and, sorry, chapters three and four. And we discover that, that it results in them being arrested, it results in them being persecuted. But the Holy Spirit leads and they follow. And, and, and the man himself, you know, they've got a problem because he can walk. And they, they, they knew that he couldn't walk from, from the day he was born. He was unable, you know, his legs were deformed or whatever it was. And yet now things have changed. But in chapter 3, chapter 3 is an illustration of the very last verse in Acts chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, we'll read that one together just to make sure that we fully understand what is taking place here. So I just read from 46. It says, this is chapter 246. It says, so continuing daily with one accord. Again, notice the imperative here. They were one. Christians are not islands on our own. Our strength is that we are brought together in the power of the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And of course, that doesn't mean that it ended there. 
because of the 3,000 who were saved. But it says that each day others were being added as it goes forward. And the church grows and grows and grows. And here we are today and we see and we know and we feel and we recognize and we know the Holy Spirit living in us, the Lord Jesus living and working within us. A name implies much more than just identification. We choose names for our children. Now, uh, some of the fathers here uh, probably uh, can remember back leaving your wife to do this particular part of the, uh, the exercise. And I remember with our children, it seemed like, you know, can't we just choose something straightforward? But no, we need to be careful because the names that we choose, there can often be a reason for it. So my mum and dad chose for me the name Simeon, and this was based... Uh, from Luke 2, uh, the section of scripture which is known in Latin as the Nunc Dimittis, uh, which is uh, Simeon, the old man at the temple. Well, we don't know that he was old necessarily, but there's a good chance that he was. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for this bundle that was going to be brought before him. And then he saw the salvation of God. And my parents wanted that to be the picture for me. And it's a joy, and we shouldn't be afraid to look at names that specific. There's a little girl called Eve at the back, and I think that's wonderful. Hi, Eve. <laughs> you know? Because names are important, and, and we've read the scriptures together, and of course, the name of the Lord Jesus, absolutely. Names also carry with them authority, reputation, and power. When someone says that you can use my name, you hope that the name you have been given is worth using. You know, mention my name and you'll get a discount. Well, when you did mention your name, they doubled the price and you knew that things weren't going to work exactly as you had thought out. But of course, a reputation within a name is important. And as believers, we have a reputation. The reputation is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are not the people that are living out the life that we should be, then the reputation of Jesus is at stake. When people come to membership in our fellowship, one of the things in our membership covenant that we state is to uphold the reputation of the church. So we have to remember that these things are important. People are looking at us. In the old days, if the president of the USA or the prime minister of Great Britain or dare we say Canada uh, or one other uh, or any other country would have made a commandment, a statement, the chances are you'd be obedient and you'd follow it. Now, sadly, that's changed because today we don't have the confidence in our leaders that we should be able to have in them. We discover that things are being said and done supposedly in the name of, of, of even God from time to time. But we discover that it isn't. It's because individuals want to have their own plans pushed through. And no longer are we in that position that we would say that that name has the authority that it has or that it should have. Lies and deceits have consequences. Uh, there was a day when you could trust the names of like CBC and the BBC and you could say, you know, the news that you was given was accurate. Those days have gone. Um, uh, Veronica's not here, but uh, not this last meeting, but uh, the one that was held in Oxford Centre uh, last year. And uh, at the end of it, a lady from CBC came up to Joe and to Veronica and I and said, could she interview us? And, and I said, only if you promise to tell the truth. And she looked at me, and do you know what she said? And she, Veronica was there, Joe was there. She said, I can't promise that. 
Okay? Because that's the situation that we find ourselves in now. But here's the point. What about the name of Jesus? Has the name of Jesus changed? Has the name of Jesus lost its power? We saw in Philippians 2. You see, for the believer, the answer is a categoric, unquestioning no. Because we know where the power is. Because we've experienced the power. I look at my life and I thank God for the power that I have seen. Who could have changed me? And maybe some of you can say and feel and think the same things, probably about me, but about yourselves as well. And you might even ask the question, why me? Why me? And yet God reaches down through his son with the power that is contained in the resurrection from the dead. And he transforms us. And comes and lives within us. Because the name of Jesus still has all authority. That little word all. All authority. Not some authority. Not authority over certain things. But all authority in this world. Why? Because Jesus is the son of God. And we must never forget that. Because Jesus is God. And that's where his authority comes from. You remember Matthew 28. uh, Verse 18 which simply says, all authority has been given to me. This is Jesus speaking. All authority. Philippians 2, 9 and 11, the name of Jesus is above every name. There is no other name in this world that can save you. Even your mum can't. Wonderful though she is. And perhaps she's the only person who loves you. But she can't save you from your sin. She'll do what she can to help you. And if she knows and loves the Lord Jesus, she will talk to you and she will live a life and she will explain what Christ has done because that's part of what a mum does. So guys, particularly I say guys, but girls as well. Guys, be grateful for your mums. I miss mine badly. Because she couldn't stop talking about the fact that Jesus loved me, even when I turned against her. He'll never let you go, she said. She was right. Even though you run away, he'll never let you go. So in chapter 2, we see that the Holy Spirit was given And the Holy Spirit brought power. The scared men stood up and they preached fearlessly. And now in chapter 3, whilst the Holy Spirit is not named once in this chapter, he's not been taken away. And now we see the outworking from chapter 2 taking place in chapter 3. And all we're doing is looking at the first 10 verses at the moment. So the Holy Spirit is given and now we see the the, the, the church is being added to daily. We're seeing things that are taking place. And all of it is because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is still at work. The Holy Spirit is at work in you. Uh, sorry, in and, and through the apostles and in us. 
the Holy Spirit continues to perform his ministry of glorifying Jesus. Uh, and if we just uh, quickly look at uh, John 16, which helps us to understand this clearly. I still have many things to say to you. This is Jesus talking to the disciples in the upper room. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them all now. I, I, that verse encourages me greatly because there are some times when you think to yourself, you know, I just can't take any more in. And it's right. There's only so much we can. And so uh, the Lord Jesus said, I, you know, I know there's stuff you need to take in. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me. He'll glorify Jesus. For he will take of what is mine, take from Jesus what is his, and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that I will take of mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me because I go to the Father. Now prior <clears throat> to um, the giving of the Holy Spirit, there had been competition amongst the disciples. We know that some of them were determined, you know, <laughs> I'm better than you are. You know, I, I can speak better than you can or jump higher than you can or whatever it was. Uh, and there was competition that was present. But now, all of that has changed. And they are faithfully working together with a common responsibility. And that responsibility is exactly the same responsibility that we have. And it's also the case that we don't have competition between ourselves. What we need to do is to seek and to pray that the Lord would give us clear understanding of the gifts and the abilities and the skills that we have. And then we use them for his glory. And it's imperative that we understand this. At last, Psalm 133 uh, was becoming real to them. Behold, how good. This is one of those wonderful verses again, isn't it? Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. My grandfather was the lead elder of a brethren assembly uh, that my mother and father and uh, uh, us as kids attended. Um, and uh, he used to say afterwards, that verse was written just for the brethren assemblies. He said, the problem is we don't follow it. <laughs> we don't listen to it because it says for brethren to dwell together in unity. Brethren assemblies had uh, some problems when it came to like the, the assembly in, uh, in, in Eddington wouldn't have anything to do with the assembly in Bridgewater. And we were all believers. And, and my grandfather could never understand this. And it was a source of great sadness. And we even see it uh, here amongst churches ourselves in, uh, in this area. Now, Acts chapter 4, verse 4, tells us that there were thousands of people around the temple at the time. And again, we see that the Holy Spirit is at work. And again, about 5,000 men believed and are brought into the church. How did they believe? Well, the scriptures, again, are very clear and explain this to us. The word was preached. There was an explanation of the word that was clearly given, and people, through the power of the Holy Spirit, were able to respond. And in all of this excitement, Peter is brought to meet a lame beggar. So you've got all these people milling around the entranceways into the temple, and Peter is brought to meet this man, 
who is lying on a mat or whatever it is, and he's lying by this gate. The gate is called Beautiful. Uh, when we look at uh, our, um, our uh, biblical encyclopedias, we discover that the gate was probably called the Corinthian Gate, and it was made from uh, bronze, and it shone like gold. It was very, very beautiful, and that's why it was called that. And even though all of this has taken place, Peter and John are brought to this one man. Was it coincidence? Was it accident? Well, I've got to say to you that in God's economy and plan, there are no coincidences. You might think it's a coincidence that something's happened in your life, but it's not because God is in control. You're here this morning for a reason. You've been brought into fellowship for a reason. Things happen in our lives and we have to, uh, to follow them. So the question that we quickly ask is why? Because God had made an appointment for this man. That was it. This man needed to meet with Peter and John. And there are people that you will meet in your life. And those encounters are brought for you. And this is the Holy Spirit working in your life. I remember uh, Charles Price when he was uh, with us last time. By the way, he's coming in October again. Uh, for a similar number of, of days, and so we look forward to that. And uh, he was talking about the fact that he sat on an airplane flying, I think, from South Korea back to Canada. And the man he sat next to is uh, a, 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 he's training as a doctor. And they, they spend the next eight or nine hours talking about the gospel. Now, is it coincidental that that conversation took place? Of course not. And there was a silence, and then a little bit later, an hour or so after they'd had a little nap or whatever it was, the guy turns to Charles Price, and he wants to know the gospel. And he says, so is everything applicable to me, or is it just others? And Charles was able to talk to him and explain that this gospel is for each and every one of us. In fact, we're commanded to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... I want you to take and make the most of every opportunity that God gives to you. Don't shirk your responsibility as a believer. Take them and allow the Holy Spirit to work with you. I cannot tell you why it was this man in this particular case, but I can say that we can learn a great deal from this encounter. What was the man's greatest need? Was it money? Okay, so you're not going to shout out too loud. Let me say that again. What was the man's greatest need? Exactly. It was not financial. Now remember that in uh, Jewish culture, giving of alms and uh, money to the poor was part of it. And that's why people gathered at the temple. I don't know if you've driven past the College Avenue United Church in Woodstock sometimes. And you see many people sort of like pushing shopping trolleys with their entire worldly possessions inside them. People sleeping rough and so on. You know, it's humbling and it's a it's a, an indictment on a country like Canada that you have so many people who are struggling, but this is the reality that we see. So they, they would gather around the temple because they knew that as people were coming in, they would be pricked, their consciences would be, because it was part of their Jewish faith to give money to the poor and those who were in need. The man's greatest need was the salvation of his soul and healing for his body. 
And through the power of the name of Jesus, we're told, we've read it several times now, the beggar was completely healed and he was so happy and he's so excited and he can't do anything else but immediately jump up. And what an experience that must have been for him. You know, he's never been able to stand upright in his life. And suddenly, not only is he able to do that, but he runs and he jumps and he's praising God and he goes into the temple. What a joy it is. And in this miracle, we see a tremendous illustration of what salvation is like. And if some of you are here this morning, you've been scratching your head, and you've been thinking to yourself, what in the world is all this salvation business like? Well, let's just look very, very quickly in closing at what took place with this guy that we have before us. So salvation is being rescued, it's being saved. And the first thing is, is that he was born lame. It's a very important verse to understand that. This guy didn't have an accident and chop his leg off or something. Um, Accidents take place, but that isn't what happened here. We're told that he was born. From his mother's womb, he was born with this defect. And all of us are born unable to walk and to be able to please God in that sense. We discover that uh, Adam, the first man, fell And he passed his lameness on to us, to all of us. If you've got time, read Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. But here's just a snippet. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world. So that's what our problem is. We're born lame. We can't walk to praise and to worship God. But notice that the man was also poor. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not you know, actually that rich myself. This guy is not able to do anything. There was no social security. There was no safety net to try and catch people in situations like that. And you and I are also born poor. In fact, we're born much more than poor. We're born bankrupt. We have nothing to be able to bring to God for our own salvation. We're totally unable to pay the tremendous debt that we owe to him. Again, if you have time, read Luke 7, 36 to 50. And if anybody wants these verses, let me know and I'll email them or text them to you. That's no problem. But again, a snippet, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Jesus has something to say to you here this morning. If you don't know and you haven't heard him speaking yet, then listen. Open your ears. Hear what it is that he has to say to you. You You're bankrupt. You cannot pay the debt that your sin has created, the void that there is. Notice, too, that the man was outside of the temple. All sinners are separated from God. No matter how near to the door of the church you might be, you are still separated for God. And maybe you think to yourself, well, I come to church every Sunday. In fact, some of these other people, they miss but I'm here. But you see, coming to church doesn't save you. It could be the means that God uses to save you. But just walking through the doors at the back won't save you. Many people walk into churches, and that's the view they have. And so the man here was outside of the temple, and all sinners are separated from God, no matter how near to the door of the church they may be. I go to church does not mean that you will go to heaven. Simple as that. 
The man was healed wholly by the grace of God. And his healing was immediate. There is nothing we can do to procure our own salvation. Again, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And we read the verse, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. God's gift. So what do you have to do if I hold out a gift? I give Chris a gift, you know. What, what have you got to do? You've got to take it. And, and people say, well, God's never offered that gift to me. Yes, he has. All the time. But what are you? How are you responding to this? I can't. He can. You see, I can't do it. I can't procure my salvation. But he can, and he has. And his salvation begins with his love for us. The man gave evidence of what God had done. How did he do that? By walking and leaping and praising God. And also by publicly, and this is an important point, later on in, in chapter 4, verse 14, and also by publicly identifying himself with the apostles both in the temple and also as they're arrested. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Isn't that wonderful? You see, now that the man could stand, it was obvious where he stood. Because he stood for God. He'd never stood in his life before for anything. And he gets up and he stands for God. And when we're born again through the power of the Holy Spirit... And the first time that we can stand, spiritually speaking, it is to stand for God. To stand in strength for him. So the question we close with is, are you standing strong for Christ? Are you standing strong for Christ? Well, it comes down to the power of the name of Jesus. And that power is available to each and every one of us as we repent, turn to him, seek him, submit to him. A word we don't like, but it's the word that's needed. And his power flows into us and instantly we are saved. And all the glory of heaven is ours. And we bring all the glory to God because of our salvation. Jesus, the name to sinners dear, the name to sinners given, it scatters all their guilty fear and turns their hell to heaven. If you're living in hell now, it can be turned to heaven.